Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmaty, brought to you by lisatarmaty.com. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Pushing the Limits, your host, Lisa Tarmaty. Today, I have the legend, Paul Taylor. Now, Paul is a former British Royal Navy aircrew officer. He's also a neuroscientist, an exercise physiologist, and a nutritionist, and he's currently completing a PhD in applied psychology, uh, where he's developing and testing resilience strategies with the Australian Defence Science Technology Group in the University of Tasmania. This guy is an overachiever. He's done a whole lot of stuff in his life. In 2010, Paul created and co-hosted the Channel One TV series Body and Brain Overhaul and in 2015 he was voted Australian Fitness Fitness Industry Presenter of the Year. This guy has been there, done that and you're going to really enjoy the conversation today all around resilience. He has so much knowledge and shares it with us all today so I hope you really enjoy this episode with Paul Taylor. Now before we head over and talk to Paul, I just want to remind you if you are wanting to check out our epigenetics what we do with our uh, gene testing program that we have where you look at your genes understand your genes and how to optimize your genes and how they are being influenced by the environment and how to optimize your environment then please head over to my website lisatarmity.com hit the work with us button and you'll see peak epigenetics peak epigenetics and click that button and find out all about it every second week we have a live webinar where we actually take you through what it's all about how what's involved and how it all works so if you want to find out about that just reach out to me you can reach me at any time under support at lisatarmity.com if you've got questions around any of the episodes if you want uh, to know a little bit more about any of the guests or you want to find out about anything that we do please reach out to us there Um, I also want to let you know about the new uh, anti-aging and longevity supplement NMN that I'm importing. Uh, I had a couple of episodes with Dr. Alina Seranova, who's a molecular biologist, who shares all the information around this incredible uh, supplement and how it upregulates the sirtuin genes in the body and helps create more NAD. Lots of big words, but very incredible. Uh, the, the the information in those episodes is really incredible. And if you want to try out this longevity and anti-aging su- uh, supplement, have more energy, it helps with cardiovascular health. There's even some evidence now starting to looking into fertility. Uh, it, it works on a very deep level in the body and it helps upregulate the sirtuin genes, which are longevity genes, helps with DNA repair, mitochondrial biogenesis, lots of really good stuff. You probably didn't uh, catch all those words, but go and listen to those episodes. The product is called nicotinamide mononucleotide. It is fully natural, is now no downside to this, uh, very safe to take, and it will slow the aging process. If you want to find out a little bit more, head on over to nmnbio.nz. That's nmnbio.nz. Right, enough for today. I'm going to send you right now over to Paul Taylor, who's sitting in south of Melbourne. 
Well, hi, everybody. Lisa Tarmody here at Pushing the Limits. Super excited to have you. I'm just jumping out of my skin for excitement because today I have the legendary Paul Taylor with me. Paul, how are you doing? I'm bloody awesome. Hi to devil are you. <laughs> Very excited to meet you. Uh, Paul is a is sitting south of Melbourne. He tells me in wine country. Is that right? That's correct. Like any self-respecting Irishman, I moved to where they make the wine. An Irishman who lives in Australia, who is ex-British Royal uh, Navy aircrew, neuroscientist, yeah. nutritionist, exercise physiologist, a bit of an overachiever, Paul. Crikey, could you do a little bit more, please? You're not doing it. Well, I'm currently doing a PhD in applied psychology just to sort of finish it, round it all out. And I need to keep myself out of mischief. That's the thing. <laughs> oh, crikey. I feel very intimidated right now. Um, but I am very excited to have you on the show because uh, I, I've come across you from our mutual friend, Craig Harper, the crazy Indeed. Harps. He is awesome. And um, and, I, and I've been listening to, to your lectures and your work and, and your learnings and just going, wow, this guy puts everything into such a lovely way with stories and, and good analogies. And so I wanted to share you with my world over here um, oh. and with my audience. So today I wanted to do a bit of a deep dive, but before we get into it, so you are doing a PhD in resilience. So can you yeah. elaborate a little bit on the, on the PhD you're doing? Yeah, so so what I'm looking at is um, psychophysiological resilience because I, I I was just I'm just bloody sick to the back teeth hearing that resilience is all about gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness, and <laughs> and and you know that stuff it's important, but as I say, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Yeah, um, there there is a large component of resilience that has to be earned, and and that's the sort of stuff that I I realized from my time in the armed forces. So the positive side is important um, but there is a lot more to it and and I actually wanted to explore it and and do the research on it and and I'm very lucky that um, one of my supervisors um, Eugene is uh, the principal scientist at Defense Science Technology Group. So right. they work a lot with the military and, mm -hmm. I, and I'm actually doing, I'm just finishing off my first uh, study with the, the military. Um, wow. So it, it's pretty cool for me having left the British military 16 years ago, yep. now doing resilience interventions with the Australian military. Wow. And, and, and I mean, it just sounds absolutely amazing. What sort of things are you, you know, because I agree, like the gratitude and all that, very, very important, but it, it mm. is the, the, you can't just decide, you know, like, a, you know, positive thinking. I'm going to be positive thinking. It's like a little bit more complicated than that. We need to look mm. at things at a bit deeper level. Um, what is it that your PhD is actually researching? So what is the, the study that you've just done, for example? Yeah, so so the one that we're doing, we we basically it's a pilot study, so um, a proof of what we call a proof of concept. So taking a bunch of military guys and, and they've gone through training. So I did uh, a full day's workshop, or sorry, four hours with the guys, mm -hmm. and then they they went on to to my app. Um, to to be able to sort of track behaviours and 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 log habits and and <clears throat> interact with each other uh, and put 
the the tools to the test and mm-hmm. so they did uh, they've done a survey on on mental well-being another survey on resilience mm-hmm. uh, and another survey on burnout so i'm actually looking at the interaction between um your resilience levels your mental well-being and your burnout uh, our risk of burnout in in the workplace and and what i'm hoping to do in further research is to develop further the 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 model or the the measurement criteria of resilience because at the minute in the literature it's just measured through a questionnaire yeah uh, and it's pretty poor really wow um, yeah just look at, yeah it's very subjective and it's also influenced by if you're doing a resilience survey it's influenced by um who is actually going to see it right so if you're oh, doing it for you. your employer um, a lot of people will actually think, oh, I better not answer this in, in a certain way because there may be ramifications. So there are limitations with, with any self-reported questionnaire. Um, but the, more lately, there's been some biological measures of resilience that, oh, that wow. have come out of University of Newcastle, um, which I'm, I'm actually going to be working with that group. So they're, they've actually oh, looked at something called an acoustic startle response. Um, which is basically you'd be sitting with your headphones on doing some sort of task and then every now and then there'd be this this um, loud noise going off in your headphones and you'd be all wired up. And you'd, they'd look at your heart rate, your blood pressure, your galvanic skin response, and you see there's a there's a spike from your, your autonomic nervous system, yeah. right? Uh, and what they have actually shown is that people who have higher levels of resilience on these self-reported questionnaires, they actually, um, uh, they acclimatize or they adapt quite quickly to that noise. Whereas mm-hmm. those who have got lower resilience or who maybe have PTSD or anxiety or depression, um, they don't habituate to it. So they yeah. still are yes, getting sir. that response, right? So, and and that's, this is about what is actually going on in the brain and, and particularly an area called the amygdala that I'm yeah. sure we'll get into. Yeah. So I, I'm looking at a, see if I can develop a triangulated measure of resilience. We're taking that maybe acoustic startle and um, some of the self-report stuff and then performance on a, a cognitive battery yep. when you're under pressure. Right. Yeah. So, so trying to then get a, a a a triangulated measure or a new measure of resilience. So, that so that's a very actually... long-winded. Yeah. So yeah, to yeah. measure it a bit more objectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, because you're working with like special forces, I think, and in, in, in the military. So these are guys that are uh, under immense, you know, pressure situations. Um, in, 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 you know, looking at our military and vets and stuff, and a lot of them come back with, you know, PTSD and all sorts of, mm. you know, mental health issues. Do you, you know, and these guys that are coming into this are tough characters. These are not, you know, and then they're coming out with, with problems and even not in the, the military, but just in things like, like my husband's a, a firefighter, you know, the stuff yeah. that they get to see every yeah. day. Like he's a really strong, resilient, resourceful human being, but I'm seeing the load, the PTSD sort of load mm. that's coming up over years and years and years is starting to have some bigger ramifications. Do you see that people that are like uh, 
you know, super hardcore, tough, amazing. But when they going into these repeated situations and being exposed, like, cause usually like exposure therapy is one mm. of the things we do to lower our stress response. You know, when you, yes. if you don't like spiders and you have to hold a spider every five minutes, you know, you're going to get used to holding a spider and it no longer will cause a response. Mm. But yeah. by the same token, are you seeing this going flip the other way? You know, yeah, like where that, you're actually getting worse from exposure? Yeah, so there's a lot of academic research um, uh, in this area looking at um, t- not just PTSD, but also burnout. So so for me, there's the, there's a continuum of workplace burnout is linked in, in, in a way to, to post-traumatic stress disorder, right? It's yeah. just that the exposure isn't as extreme. There's not that, that trauma, but it's the insidious, consistent exposure to stress that actually changes the brain. It changes the brain both structurally and functionally. So what I mean by that is is what we're seeing in in both PTSD and anxiety and depression, by the way, and workplace burnout. You know, with the advent of brain scanners, they're able to to take a bunch of people uh, and follow them for a long period of time, six months, a year, two years, uh, ask them about their stress levels, and then look and see, does the brain change over time? And wow. what they're actually seeing in that, that people who are suffering from burnout or anxiety or depression or PTSD, there are significant, as I said, structural and functional changes in the brain. So what yeah. I mean by that, from a structural perspective, the amygdala, the part of the brain that, that who, one of its job is to sense and respond to stress, and yep. um, it actually becomes bigger. Um, so there's there's increased sales, increased connections in it. It hypertrophies, just like your muscles wow. would hypertrophy. Because it's getting um, a lot of because it, it it and and we I'll come back to that in a second why this is right. But in concert with that, um, areas of the prefrontal cortex, you know, that rational planning, judgment part of the brain, and also another another area called the anterior cingulate cortex, they're actually shrinking. There's there's damage to those neurons. The neurons are are are, are and there's less activity in those areas. Wow. And and what this means functionally is it means it's a less connected brain, and it means it's a brain that is less able to um, control emotional responses. So basically, the amygdala is starting to hijack the brain. The, the, yeah. The, yeah, the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio, he's the first to show in his lab that that um, with that repeated or expo- if your amygdala becomes sufficiently activated, it can actually secrete chemicals out that block your frontal lobes. Yep. Basically, it says, talk to the hand, yeah. I'm in control of this brain, right? Now, we and you lo- know that is losing our shit, right? Yes. This amygdala hijack. But <laughs> when this, is, hap- when this is happening repeatedly, what's happening is that there, there are um, neuroplastic changes in the brain, right? And, and we know that this even happens um, in, in unborn children, in fetuses, yeah. that if they're exposed to that. chronic stress in the yeah. third trimester, the amygdala will grow bigger and more sensitive, yeah. right? And if we think about it, it's an amazing adaptive response because it's basically they're getting inputs through the placenta and stress hormones. Or if we're adults, we're getting inputs saying this is a dangerous world. Right? I've got to be vigilant. And yeah. The brain is all about survival first. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. It's all about survival. So um, sometimes that adaptive response is maladaptive. Right. In that there are changes that no longer serve us. Right. And so this is what happens with people get 
burnout or, or, or anxiety, depression, PTSD is that there are adaptive changes that turn maladaptive. And, and it's basically because the brain is being overwhelmed with stress, either way too much stress in the case of trauma or just complete daily. just bombardment, daily bombardment with stress and not enough recovery. And I know as a lead athlete, you know mm-hmm. about the balance between stress and recovery and yeah, how never it's got really, it right. really critical. Yeah. <laughs> and never many got don't, it right? <laughs> Burnout was my best friend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a there's a huge because I study genetics. Um, there's a huge genetic component to this as well. Mm, there is, you know, yeah. When you're looking at you know your your uh, how your how long your adrenal um, uh, your, your your stress hormones, for example, stay in the body. Your comp gene, yeah. your DRD two yeah. gene, the adrenal two B gene, ones that that actually get the adrenaline. And is it going to stay? here in the body very long or is it going to be out and they call that yeah. like the warrior gene and the warrior the war- warrior and warrior yeah. yeah which when i say it people go what's the War- difference yeah. i go warrior <laughs> and warrior the warrior like, as in a you know a maori warrior and the other yeah. one as in worrying yeah, <laughs> worrying yourself right. to death and there's a genetic predispositions and then you couple that with an environmental uh being overwhelmed with a, either an event or uh, a series of events or like you say the constant bombardment because that is a question in my head you know like uh you know you and i you know their history we've both been in uh some pretty freaking scary situations in the in life and those Mm. are certain traumas that you know you've been through and you've carried but then there is the daily shit that goes on you know like like something that i'm dealing with currently is like I don't know, you know, but the level of anxiety sometimes is yeah. is like just high just because I feel like a computer with a million windows open and it's got, you know, inputs mm, coming up inputs. and a hundred and there's so many and you try not to drop the ball and you just, you know, you you're wearing so many hats on so many levels. Um, so that's a different type of anxiety, and it's um, and that one, I, I you know, like the big the big major ones that you've been through. Yeah, yeah, you, 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 well, they're sort of self-explanatory that you've got problems with those, but these little ones can be quite damaging too, eh? That, that uh, daily uh, grind. Uh, uh, absolutely, and, and and I like your analogy about having a million windows open, and and, and that's really modern life is is just input overload. Yeah, uh, for for a lot of people, and um, you know, it's even we we know that reading the news a, a lot and the yeah, negativity, particularly around COVID, <laughs> yeah. is just bad juju, right? Particularly mm. if you are predisposed or you have underlying anxiety. Then we've got kids, you know, we got that that juggle, we got. Per- you know, our age, we got kids and parents, right? Yeah. Um, we've got work stresses, we got money worries, we got relationship issues. These are all things that 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 our ancestors didn't really have to deal with, right? And our stress response system has evolved over the last two million years in our ancestors in response to certain challenges, right? So three minutes of screaming terror on the African savannah when you're being chased <laughs> by a lion, yeah. that's your fight or flight mechanism. Yep. And then longer term or really traumatic stresses, but but mostly longer term stress like famine, and that's the HPI axis and cortisol. And, yeah. and as you rightly said, different people are different. You know, there, there's there's genetic predispositions to which one is dominant, how, how, how quick the clearing is. But there's also that, as you rightly said, and a lot of people don't understand this, is the, the interaction between nature and nurture, that just because you have a certain variant of a gene, mm. 
it mm. predisposes you. It doesn't mean you're going to develop that. No. It, there needs to be that event. And, and then we know that those events, when, they're, when they happen early in life, yep. tend to have a bigger impact, right? Yes. But so children the, are exposed to trauma. It, yeah, much exactly. Deeper in the shit than an adult. That, yeah, they can can be on, unless you know they they have the presence of a of a caring supportive adult. Mm-hmm. Often they can get through it and end up being more resilient. Or mm-hmm. if they've got a certain variant of a gene that when they're exposed to stress as a kid they end up more resilient as an adult. So it's it's a really complicated thing. And the thing that I also talk about that a lot of people don't is it also depends on on other environmental factors going on. Like what's your nutrition right? Like yep. what's your sleep like? Yeah. What's your exercise like? You know, yeah. all of those things are, are hugely, hugely important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That this is a it's a really complicated story yeah. as to to whether someone um develops some psychopathology because of exposure to either trauma or just that insidious day-to-day stress. Uh, what we call de-stress versus you stress, which uh, I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, now that that's absolutely. I, I mean, I, I I preach a lot about doing the fundamentals, right? You know, getting your sleep mm. at the basis of everything is good quality absolutely. sleep, and that's not easy. It's not always a, an easy, simple thing. Understanding your particularly if you're under rhythms. stress, right? Yeah, yeah, because your brain won't bloody turn off. And, you know, having and and studying, you know, the GABA and dopamine and adrenaline and norepinephrine and all these these chemicals that are running out and and they're actually, you know, controlling us to a large degree or at least when we're unaware of their influence on the body. But there are things that we can actually do to actually help regulate our own physiology. So, I mean, guys and and girls in the armies and the the military have to do this. Like, you know, or even like I I watched my husband and my brother, both firefighters, when they're under a, you know, emergency situation, three o'clock in the morning called to a bloody accident, someone's, you know, trapped in a burning car type situation, um, like my husband's just so cool and calm and collected in that mm. moment. Like he's completely, yeah. uh, you know, present and in, 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 in daily life, he's quite a shy, introverted dude, right? Mm. But in the when the shit hits the fan, I've seen his, like he doesn't put on a cabbage head. Mm. When I looked at his genetics, he doesn't have that predisposition to, to having adrenaline much. He doesn't have much of an adrenal response. So he can yeah. he'll come up for a minute and then he'll be back down very quickly, and he and he'll be able to control it. And he also understands, you know, I've taught him all about breathing and all that sort of jazz to to help regulate your cortisol and you know all of that sort of stuff. But it it, it is a predisposition. My predisposition, I have a hell of a lot of adrenaline, testosterone up the wazoo, dopamine. Um, I tend to uh, start, you know, really responding and taking action. Mm-hmm. But I have to actually turn on the prefrontal cortex. I have to really focus on that and not just fly around like a, a blue ass fly going, you know, just <laughs> just you know, running into the burning building without thinking about what the hell I'm doing. Uh, yeah. So to, to different responses, and both are very good responses in a way, if you can learn to manage them and control them and bring them on at the right time, you know? Yeah, um, and that, look, that that's where the training element comes into it, yeah. right? Um, so irrespective of of what your underlying genetics are um you know through military training or or armed for our police uh or firefighters you know they they are trained in these situations routinely 
and, and, and you just, you, the brain sort of habituates to it and, mm-hmm. and you learn strategies to be effective under that pressure, what we call arousal control strategies, right? Mm-hmm. So whether that, that is, uh, and arousal control can be, can be both ways, can be for, for people who are generally low, can be getting them up to yeah. that right level of arousal. And for yeah. people who are a bit too overactive, bringing their arousal down so they're, they're, they're in that peak That's performance I mean. zone. That's the, <laughs> the neuroscientist Amy Arnston talked about Goldilocks. And yeah. the Goldilocks effect of stress in the brain, that it can't be too little because you, when, when you're bored or you're under aroused, your performance is just not going to be optimal. Yep. But also it can't be too much. Um, everybody's got a level of arousal that is wow, too that's much. Wow, that's a cool analogy. I like that. The yeah. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful analogy. And she's yeah. shown, looks at the, uh, the neurotransmitters that are involved in, yep. in that, uh, and, and particularly looking at dopamine and, and noradrenaline yeah. uh, or norepinephrine, as some people call it, um, how they're really important in that regulation. But tr- as I say, training, um, specific training and repetition um, can really help people just to get into an automated response and no matter what their genetic predisposition. So if, if someone is prone to a lot of anxiety and maybe depression and yeah. uh, what are some of the practical, like if we start talking a few practical strategies now for people dealing with different issues and let's start with anxiety and, and maybe depression, um, what are some of the things that they can do when that um, amygdala hijacks you? Um, how do you get a, get a grip on yourself and yeah. actually change the physiology because you feel you feel say say some big you know noise happens or an earthquake happens or something and you 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 you've got that adrenaline just poured out and and mm. you've got all those stress cortisol and all that. How do you bring yourself down quickly? Get yourself under control so you don't end up in a panic attack, for example. Yeah. So there's both there's both short term strategies and there's long term adaptive strategies, right? So and I'll go into to both of those things. Uh, uh, first of all, it's it's important to understand what's going on, right? So this is about the autonomic nervous system, and and there are um, uh, some of your listeners will be aware of this, but there's two branches of the autonomic nervous system. There's the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic, and the sympathetic is probably badly labeled because it's not very sympathetic, right? Yeah. It's the one that in, increases <laughs> stress, right? Yeah. So, and if we think about the response that's going on, so in the brain, the amygdala senses a threat, it sets off a general alarm, uh, and and then the hypothalamus is involved in this. The, the sympathetic branches is, is fired up, and for some people, it fires up more than others. But for everybody, when that's fired up, um, the the vagus nerve is really quite important in this. That's the mm-hmm. nerve that connects the brain to the heart, the lungs, and all the visceral organs, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the blood pressure goes up, heart, heart rate goes up in order to pump blood to the muscles to, the to muscles enable you to find a runaway, right? Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, breathing gets faster and shallower. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we know your digestive system is affected. Um, all the blood that is um, in your, your digestive system digesting your food is shunted away. Yeah. It's yep. shunted away to the working muscles, right? We know the immune system's temporarily switched off. The reproductive system's temporarily switched off because there's no point in ovulating or creating sperm when you're being chased by a lion. It's a 
waste of energy, right? <laughs> Makes so, sense. But if we think for a second about the long-term consequences, when people are in a, a chronic state of over-arousal, even if that's just low baseline over-arousal. So I have a suppressed reproductive system. This is why people who are chronically stressed, um, uh, they become infertile, fertile, right? Yeah. Boom. Um, this is why they develop digestive system issues like irritable bowel syndrome and stuff like that, wow. uh, which we know can change your microbiome. And then there's a two-way interaction, which we'll talk about later. Um, the immune system becomes suppressed. That's why people develop, they get sick and they take longer to recover, whether wow. it's from a wound, whether it's from training load or whether it's it's, it's from any type of illness or injury. Um, and then heart damage can happen, right? Um, wow. With that chronic stress. Hell. So now so that's overactivation of the sympathetic branch of the of, of the and particularly the vagus nerve, right? No, what we now know is it's only taken our scientists about three thousand years to catch up with the knowledge of yogis, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. funny that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Certain breathing patterns can affect your heart and your brain. And I used to think, you know, all that breathing, I used to think it was fluffy bullshit until I got into the science. And Jesus, how wrong was I? Me too. I, right. I must admit. And now I'm yeah. like. Doing it a hundred times a day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, techniques like box breathing. Uh, yep. I'm sure your listeners have probably heard you talk no, about well, it. No, well, yeah, repeat breathe, it. Yeah, yeah. Breathe like the sides of a box. Breathe in for four or five seconds. Hold for four or five. Yep. Out for oh. four or five. Hold for four or five. Um, so you can also do a modified box breathe, which is in for four. Um, hold for four, out for six, hold for two. Yep. And, and I'll talk about that in a second. There's also something called resonant frequency breathing, which is also really, really beneficial and, and can actually enhance your what's called heart rate variability. Yes. Which is yep. a kind of a window into overall stress yeah, over on the body. Yeah. So resonant frequency breathing, you need some equipment to measure it effectively, but generally uh, everybody listening is probably between four and a half, five breaths and seven breaths a minute. And it's been shown it's that ideal. if you get if you get within one of that, then you're good. So I teach people just generally six breaths a minute, right? But so that's 10 second breath cycle, but breathe in for four and out for six. Because the longer breath out, when you breathe in, you are upregulating your sympathetic nervous branch, right? When you breathe out, you're activating the parasympathetic nervous branch. So the long breath out is really, really key, which yeah. is why I talk about the modified box breathing as yeah. well. So that resonant frequency breathing or box breathing can be really, really useful um, to deal with stuff in and of the moment. Just it's basically autonomic nervous system control, control. through breathing. Control your That's physiology it. in seconds. And, eh? and, in, and, in and the other thing, the other thing that that goes in concert with that, um, and my wife uses a lot of this. She's um, qualified in ACT acceptance commitment therapy and Japanese psychology, mm-hmm. uh, and and we're both fans of, of wow. Stoic philosophy. Yep. Um, it is about attention, and all three of these agree, agree that uh, attention is key. So if we take a step back, people who have anxiety or depression or just have a, a busy mind, you know, they've they've got a lot of negative self talk going on. They want to get rid of it, right? But these three approaches. Um, actually say, look, getting rid of it, it's not really the objective. It's really about where you focus your attention. So if you think of your attention like a light, um, when you're in that stress response, your attention 
um, it's it, it very internal focused if you're anxious or depressed or you're stressed about something that's on that particular thing. Uh, but it's an internal experience that you're having. So just shifting your attention outward. So if you're not in danger, this is, you know, you just yeah. have an anxiety, depression, whatever, is um, just look for the color blue. That's one thing, yep. right? Just shine the light of your attention somewhere Take your else. Mind so, off it. Like so, a naughty kid who's having a tantrum, yeah, just distract absolutely. it. Yeah, and, and, and I call that that part of the brain, you know, your inner gremlin that, that's <laughs> responsible for anxiety, depression, and um, but also just negative self-talk and um, self-criticism and um, anger, uh, you know, all of these things. And um, the key thing to understand is your gremlin's like a chameleon. Right, it can take many guises, but wow. it's like if you remember the movie Gremlins, when you feed Mogwai after midnight, it becomes energized and turns <laughs> into the Gremlin. So, it, when you shine the light of your attention on the Gremlin, it becomes energized. So, this is where you just shift your attention either to you know, where's the color blue, or what can I smell, or, or we like to, oh, are you breathing? Yeah, that's another great combination. Uh, and I like to talk about um, shifting your attention to uh, uh, the concept of your inner sage, which is what the Stoic philosophers talked about. Mm. You know, that's that's the optimal version of you. Um, and that's either my best self, me at my best, or some sort of other character that I'm consulting. Ah, yes. I heard it's you just, talk about this on yeah, uh, Craig's and show, and I was like, that's such a... That analogy that you used with your, like there was one with your son, Oscar, and yeah. uh, uh, him talking, having Derek, I think it was. Yeah, that's Derek. right. Yeah, brilliant. brilliant <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So creating a character around these these two polarizing figures. I, I call, yeah, I, I've always talked about the lion and the snake in my head. Right, um, yeah, cool, perfect. Or Wonder Woman and Miss Chicken Shit, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's me. And, and you, we all have this positive amazing self and we have the self that's full of self-doubt and imposter syndrome and I can't do this and angry and negative and cynical and it, so it's creating a character. So tell that story a little bit. Yeah. So so the character thing and um, is is really really powerful. Um, and and so I get people to to you've got to bring this character to life, right? So there's a little exercise which I'll share with you, and you can share with your listeners, <laughs> um, where you know you say your inner. So I call them your inner gremlin and your inner sage, right? Or you can say whatever sage. you want. Yeah. So. What do they say first thing in the morning, right? You write that down. Generally, your inner gremlin is the one that says press snooze or not another bloody day, <laughs> right? Go. But I'm then so you good. go, what do they say when they're faced with a challenge? Mm-hmm. And then you write down their character strengths and particularly you focus on your inner sage. What are the character strengths that you have when you're at your best? And then I like to do a thing called plus ones. Like what are ones that you'd like to develop or have more of? And you write down, so if it's calm under pressure or being more empathetic, I'm going to write down that my inner sage is calm under pressure, is more empathetic, right? And then drawing the characters is is a brilliant thing because it brings it to life. And and Oscar, when he, uh, totally. And and, and Oscar, when he drew the characters, he he drew Derek and and he drew uh, Flash, who is now actually being replaced with Richie. A little (laughs) side story. I actually bought... um, a book called The Real Macaw uh, from Richie Macaw, oh, right? Okay, yeah. Because yeah. I, 
I'm a big fan of the All Blacks and particularly Richie McCaw. And I bought his book uh, and I was wanting to read it. And, and it friggin' it just disappeared and I couldn't find where it was. And and one night I went down to Oscar's room. He was supposed to be asleep and he's there reading and he's reading that book. He'd nicked it from me and he had a <laughs> highlighter. He's 10 years old and he's highlighting stuff wow. that Richie McCaw said, right? So now his, oh. his inner siege is called Richie, right? But <laughs> when he drew these original ones, he actually did a speech bubble um, for Derek and it said, I will crush the good ones and I will be the king of Oscar's head. Wow, this like, is mind blowing. Oh, and cool he was five or shit, something. Right? Eh? No, like, he was, I think he was seven at seven. the time, right? Oh my God. But, but I mean, how cool, uh, maybe six actually, but you know, sometimes kids are so insightful because yeah. that's what happens, right? Is that when that negative character takes a hold of the negative self-talk, it does crush the good self-talk and it becomes the king of your head if you choose to let it, right? Yeah. So and my inner stage is called Jeb. So when I'm struggling uh, or I need to get myself up, I just go, what would Jeb do right now, right? Yeah. And so that's this is a, 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 a process in a psychology called self-distancing, where uh-huh. you're taking yourself out of the emotional state and you consult wow. a character or my best friend or whatever, and it actually shows it reduces the emotional intensity and research shows that people make better choices. They're more Gosh. courageous and they make better choices, right? And um, so that's one, I think, really useful way to shine the light of your attention. So the, the process that I use, depending on who's around, right? If someone's having a bit of an anxiety or just a bit of negative stuff, I, I, I like um, discharge, recharge, reframe. So discharge. think about it. It's stress mm. hormones, right? Particularly yeah, yeah. if somebody's get having it anxiety. Out. Get it out. You got to discharge those stress hormones. Yeah. When you run have away a, or fight, Go for a run. you come back to homeostasis, right? And I find even 30 seconds of yeah. intense activity is enough. Wow. So you've discharged the stress hormones. Then you recharge by your breathing, right? So you're doing that breathing and you're focusing on your breathing. And um, So your amygdala hijack is gone now. You're, you're focusing on the breathing and then you reframe and you go, okay, what would Jeff do right now? Or what would my character do right yeah. now? Or if I've written down all my character strengths, what action do I need to take right now to display those characteristics, right? So the, the Japanese and Japanese oh, psychology, yeah. Marita therapy, there's this beautiful term called arugamama, right? It is what it is. And then they say, what needs to be done? And the Stoics are very much like that. What what do we need to do right now? Yeah. So it's very action-focused, right? Um, and so that is something that I think works really it, well yeah, in combination. It sort of, it, it sort of um, removes yourself so that you're looking – it's like looking down on yourself because Absolutely. Like this, this brain of ours is like a thought factory. It just keeps totally. going and talking and chattering and go, 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 go. And 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 our yeah emotions take over our amygdala often is in control instead of our prefrontal cortex and if we can separate ourselves and sort of hover over ourselves and I you know I've been looking you know into uh, stuff like what what happens after death because I just recently lost my dad and so I'm you know like all those questions how do I connect to my dad on the other side mm. <laughs> all of that sort of jazz that nobody can bloody answer really yeah but I was going to say if you get the answer let me know yeah I'm working on it eh? I'm just <laughs> really trying to work it out but what you know a lot of them talk about the connection to the other side and opening up those channels and to me it's like okay so 
just from a brain point of view, if I just separate my myself out from my brain, you know, mm-hmm. like if you believe that, that we are a spiritual being uh, and we are, so we, our brain, our body, we're just walking around in this, this earthly body, but um, we have a, a higher self, if you like. So it's, a, it's this higher self looking at that brain going, oh, she's she's running that stupid program again that she learned mm. when she was seven. It's no longer relevant here. I need to change the recording and I need to change up. So it's just giving your way of, uh, yourself a way of separating yourself from the actual emotions that your body is feeling, your physiology yeah. is feeling like now. And, yeah, for me, uh, a lot of it is uh, when I get anxious and stuff, I will just go and sprint for, you know, 50 meters, like you say, it doesn't yeah. have to be long. It, it might be two be minutes. It just comes back, reset myself. Sometimes I even have, if it's really bad situation or whatever, I'll have a little cry that discharges mm-hmm. more energy. And then I pick myself up and we'll get on with it and we'll do a yeah, breathing and we'll get back into, into gear. And, and, and just having those little tools in your toolbox can really help you manage the day-to-day crap that comes at us. And even in the big situations, you know, the really traumatic ones I've used those situations you know regularly just remove myself for a minute from the situation go and get my shit together and then come back mm-hmm. into the into yeah. the situation and that can really help if you you know have the luxury of doing that um, so th- I think these are really really important because people often think well, you know, they look at someone like you and all your achievements and all the stuff that you've done uh, or even, you know, all the races that I've done. Oh, I never, I could never do that and I could, oh, you know, but you, that's your automatic negative thoughts coming mm. in, your ants, as Dr. Daniel yeah. Amen talks about, yes. you know, yes. they, they just pop up and you need to realise that that isn't you, that's just your brain doing its thing and you can choose not to believe that brain when it tells you you're not good enough or you're not sexy enough or you're not pretty enough or you're not strong enough or whatever the case may be. You can go, no, I'm not listening to that and I'm, I'm diverting and you, what you're saying is divert your attention Mm, yeah, absolutely, and it, it, you know those those ants, those automatic negative thoughts. In in Marita therapy, in Japanese psychology, it's it's basically it's a story. Mm. It's a, it's a story that we tell ourselves, and, yep. and there are a number of different stories, and it depends what story we pay attention to, and because when you pay attention to a particular story, when we think about what's happening in the brain, that 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 self concept or that idea that I'm not good enough, is basically what we call a neural net in the brain, right? Mm-hmm. It's a it's a bunch of neurons that are firing together for a concept or a thought or a, or a particular line of thinking. And and the, the Scottish neuroscientist Donald Hebb showed in the 1950s, it's called Hebbian learning. And it's a well-accepted way of the brain works. Nerve cells that fire together, wire together, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. So every time you're repeating that thought or paying it's attention true. to it, yeah. You're strengthening, you're strengthening it. And it. he showed that that eventually after a, a certain amount of, of repetitions, and we don't know the magic number, but that circuit becomes what's called long-term potentiated. Wow. This means that this circuit is primed for firing. And it means that then even neutral information is more likely to fire off that circuit, right? Wow. And every time you're 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 paying attention to it, you're strengthening it. So so the the, the other approach is to go. Uh, thanks, Gremlin, or thanks, Brian. Thanks for that story that you're telling me. 
but it's not helpful right now, right? And that's where you focus on another story or a, a particular affirmation that people might have, uh, you, you know, or a different story, you know, I've got this, whatever. That's, a, that's another neural net. And every time you're focusing on it and paying attention to it, you're strengthening it, right? Yeah. So it's about interrupting the old um, uh, maladaptive, uh, uh, unhelpful um, thought patterns that we all and, have. and actually mm. creating new ones. And every time you catch yourself on, this is why the, the first part of all of this is about being the watcher. It's about being the watcher in your own brain. Yeah, and for lots it. of people, this is a friggin' revelation yeah. that they can actually watch their thoughts and, and do it with curiosity and go, wow, there's an interesting negative thought and that's an interesting negative stream. Where did that bullshit. come from? <laughs> yeah, and, and then be curious and go, well, what would a more positive thought actually be, right? So you can trick yourself into having these positive thoughts. And every time you're doing it, you're laying down and strengthening those networks in the brain, right? So like anything, you, like you didn't become awesome at what you did by doing it once and then right. boom, that's it. It's about repetition, repetition, repetition. So it really, the first step is being the watcher, and then just repeatedly intervening and going, actually, I have a choice, right? And, um, you know, what, what's called in, in acceptance commitment therapy, the choice point. And Viktor Frankl talked about it. Um, the, the Jewish psychiatrist who was imprisoned in Auschwitz. Yeah, maybe. And I read his book as a 17-year-old. It had a pretty profound effect on me. He said, in between stimulus and response is, is the space where we have the ability to choose. And, wow. and he talked about the last of human freedoms is your ability to choose how you react to your circumstances, whether they be external circumstances or circumstances in your head. We all have that, that ability to choose how we're reacting, right? And, and, and choosing what we actually focus on. And, it, and wow. it's the, this light of attention that I think is really, really powerful. So when we wrap it all up in those characters um, and, and, and then we're repeatedly doing it and, and then people are waking up in the morning and actually spending a few minutes saying, okay, who am I going to be today? Yeah. What version of me is going to interact with the world? And, and every time they, they observe negativity going, well, actually I've got a choice right now. What would Jeff do right now, right? Yeah. Before they walk into their office, um, just before you walk in the door, just think, what, 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 what do I need to do to express those characteristics of my best self? And, and especially when you come home, particularly if you've had a yeah. shitty day, yep. you just spend 10 or 15 seconds going, okay, there's a choice here. And um, what version of me to my partner, my little kids want to see walk into the room, right? And it's just that little mental rehearsal as you'll have done hundreds of thousands of times as an athlete. And every world-class athlete does this mental rehearsal because yep. that shit on the, works. <laughs> I mean, that's your a, game face on, It's right? your game face. I, I have this analogy and I, you know, I've told this story before on the podcast, but um, when I was doing this race in the Himalayas and uh, absolutely terrified, 222 Ks at extreme altitude, never. Jesus I'm, Christ. I'm a, and I'm an asthmatic with a small set of lungs who did mostly deserts for a particular reason oh. and I was absolutely packing myself and uh, and I, I got my crew together like two days before and I said you have to protect me my brain you have to like tell me how amazing I am every time a negative thought comes up 
I want you to sort of shout it down for me, yeah. you know, and protect me from everybody else. And on the day of the actual event, so they did that and they really helped me get my, my shit under control because I was really losing it. Like I was just terrified. I'd had a concussion in the build-up. I'd had a ripped uh, ligament, so I hadn't had a good build-up and it was the scariest thing I'd done at, the, at that time. I know, well, I've done some other scary, crazy shit, but that was pretty up there. And on race day, you wake up and you have that moment for a second where you go, oh, shit, it's that day, you know, yeah. that day that you've been, you know, preparing for for a year and a half, but it's that day and you've got to get up and face down, you know, 222Ks in the mountains and extreme, extreme temperatures, extreme altitude and no no air and things. And and then you, and I'm putting on my gear and then that, mo- that, that, that person changes. When I put on my... My running uh, that, gear. That's your thing, is That's it? my right. thing. That's my ritual. When that's I put on change. that number, there's a different Boom. person in front of you. Yeah, yeah. And that person is a freaking warrior. Yeah, 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 yeah. In my head. Mm. You know, I'm not, but I am in yeah. my head. In that moment, mm. I am Wonder Woman. You know, I'm Gal Gadot. I can do any freaking thing. And awesome. I'm telling myself the story. I'm telling myself the story in order to create the chemicals in my body that I need just to get to the freaking start line and not run the other way because I'm terrified. Yeah. And then and then from once you start and you're in the you're in the battle, you're in the battle. You're in it. Then mm. there's no there's no way out but through and then you have to bring in all the guns over the period of the next 53 hours I had to bring you know out all of the stops sort of <laughs> thing to get through every crisis that came and the you know these voices in your head are pretty freaking loud after you know 50 something hours out there and the, <laughs> that they bloody well are yeah yeah but but you know when you when you go one because one of the other analogies that I wanted to bring up that you talked well so well about on one of the interviews was the small circle and the big circle Yes. And the small circle is your comfort zone. That's you. That's the life that you're living when you're in your comfy world and you're not pushing outside the the, the zone and you're, you're, you're saying safe because you don't, you're too frightened to jump out into the, to the big circle is what you can be and your potential mm. and your, you know, but out there in that big circle, it's freaking scary. It's hard work. It's terrifying. There's risk of failure. There's all sorts of things. And everybody wants to be that big person that does these, you know, lives this full life that reaches their, you know, none of us will reach our full potential, but we're, you know, reaching Mm. a heck of a lot of our potential and not living in the safe little comfortable I'm scared world. Uh, And and pushing yourself every single day to do shit that hurts is hard, scares the crap out of you, and then coming back and recovering, you Mm. know? I mm, think that's that, a, it's it's critical, right? Yeah, and and, and the, you know I call the that 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 big circle. Our scientists will refer to that as the zone of productive disequilibrium, right? <laughs> Where you <laughs> are out of balance. Word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're out of balance. You're out of whack. Uh, but it, it is where adaptation happens, and and this is this is the problem. So we we are by, by our very nature we are comfort seekers, right? Um, just because um, uh, all of our uh, history um, has been um, of discomfort, and so it's it's pretty natural that we're comfort seekers. The problem is that uh, we have an ancient genome in a in a in a modern world. Our yeah. genome hasn't changed in forty five thousand yeah. years, right? And for for the vast majority of our human history. 
and um, we had lots of discomfort. Life was uncomfortable. And we became the dominant species on Earth largely because we adapted better to environmental stressors and pressures than other species, right? Now, what's happened in the last 100 years since the Industrial Revolution, particularly in the last 30 years, is that we have stopped adapting to our environment and we've started changing it. And 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 recently we've changed our environment to such a, a level yeah. that we're no longer optimally matched to it genetically, right? Yeah. So when we seek comfort, we get soft. We develop yeah. a soft underbelly. And this is what a lot of the positive psychology people do not talk about, right? Yeah. Is that I mean. getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. <laughs> that it's when, and, and look, you can just do this quite simply. If you're sitting listening to this, think of your biggest achievement in your life, something that you are most proud of. And I guarantee you for almost every listener, it will involve stress and being out of your comfort zone. But we need to hang with the tension long enough for adaptation to happen. And lots of people spend most of their life in that little small circle, the comfort zone, and they dip their toe into the uncomfortable zone of productive disequilibrium. And they go, this is uncomfortable. I'm getting right out of here. No good shit ever happened in your comfort zone, right? <laughs> This it's is a the quote thing. from Paul Taylor. No That's good it. shit ever happens in your comfort zone. You got to put that one up on It's the like past 2 a.m., right? That's the <laughs> that's the thing. No good shit happens there. So it, it is about seeking discomfort. And and I have a, a you know one of my things which you you actually exemplify much better than me, but is that get comfortable with being uncomfortable, yeah. right? Yep. That that's really key. And I think we have as a as a, a generation in the, particularly in the West, we we have got comfortable with being comfortable, yeah. and we are and comfort seekers. And cozy, and all it's the it's time. all it's served up to us everywhere, yeah. and we're prompted to to buy things and 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 do things that make us comfortable. And, and and it's natural to want to go there, but it's not self-serving. But our right? biology that, isn't. Our epigenome no, isn't, you know, no, absolutely getting out not. of that thermonutrient zone, for example, like yeah. cold showers, cold water, hot, you know, all of these things that are outside the, the neutral zone are where the change happens from a bi- you know, right. physiological point of view. If I hop in a sauna, I'm going to create heat shock programming teams. I'm Absolutely. going to sweat. That's going to cause all this cascade of events in my body that will make me stronger the next time. When I go to the gym and I work out with weights, then I'm going to be sore and I'm, I'm going to be breaking down the tissues. What happens is a cascade of events that makes me stronger for next week. And then and, uh, and here's the thing. Here's the thing, though, right? That if if somebody recovery. goes once, if someone yeah. you know ha- hasn't been hasn't trained for ages, and then thinks, <laughs> particularly if they're a bloke, uh, and they go right, I'm going to get back, and then they go to a CrossFit class or F45 hardcore, yeah, and they yeah. come out and they go, Jesus, that was ridiculous. Yeah, that I'm was never doing hard. that again. <laughs> yeah, but then you're not going to adapt, right? You only yeah. get bigger, faster, so- stronger because you hang with the tension long enough for adaptation to happen yep. right yep. now seeking comfort we should do that when we're in recovery right yes. but a lot of people and we should really define about the difference between recovery and relaxation 
right? Okay. Recovery isn't sitting with your feet up with a, a bottle of wine watching Netflix, right? Recovery is, is stuff that is actually energizing you, right? Is doing the breathing stuff, is doing the meditation, doing the Tai Chi, the Qigong, um, you know, those sorts of things, yoga, or for some people it's drawing, it's reading a book, it's yep. connecting with others, it's gardening, it's spending time in nature, you know, the, these are all things that that really help us with that that balance between stress and recovery. And when if we get that right, the stress becomes you stress. And it, and if we are are, are are just exposed to that too much or don't get the recovery right, yeah. it's de-stress. And then we can go into burnout slash overtraining syndrome, which they, when you look at the physiology between overtrained athletes and yep. burnt out executives and depressed people, it's almost identical. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I've had, you know, like uh, I've had to um, try to get my head around this because when you're, you know, you're an athlete and you've, I grew up in a household where being tough was cool and physical mm. toughness and mental toughness were what was valued and what was you know, rewarded in my family. So therefore I have this co complete construct in my head that if you're not tough and you're not hard ass all the time, then you're useless. And I've had to deconstruct that a little bit because that led me to burnout. That broke yeah. me. That that, that yeah. led to a hell of a lot of pain and, and sickness and, and, and all, all sorts of things. Now, as I'm hopefully older and wiser, I know that my body also is a, has a full on and it has to have a full off and that recovery yeah. is really important. And that, and that recovery can be cuddling the cat. It can be mm. uh, going to the beach with my husband and just staring at the waves for half an hour to recover. Yeah. It, it doesn't have to be something epic and it can be something like the sauna or the your hyperbaric yeah. over there or something like that. That's physically going to help me recover or mentally help me recover. And that, those are as important and not feeling guilty for not being a hard ass all of the time. Cause yeah, you know, yeah. a lot of my listeners are, you know, athletes and people that like to push hard all the time, type A personalities. And that can be, have the flip side when you're just outside your comfort zone all the time, you're pushing too hard for too long without any recovery yeah. as well. I and you know, there's there's some interesting emerging neuroscience in this area is that 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 people who are who are like that, who are those type of personalities who are very goal driven, and um, they they tend to be very dopamine driven. Yeah, yeah, brain. yeah. Yep. Um, whereas uh, uh, when you get that out of whack, that balance between dopamine and serotonin, yep. um, it, it's not good and it, it leads no. to risk of burnout. So so serotonin, to simplify things really, is dopamine's all about achievement. It's about goal-directed behavior and motivation. So it's pushing you to do, do, achieve, achieve in that context, yep, right? To get that reward. Um, but then there, there is this whole serotonin-driven system, which is more about contentment, relaxation, um, connection, that sort of stuff. And I find that there are a lot of high achievers who are at risk of burnout because they're just on, 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 Dopamine on, on, all the time, yeah. and, and not enough serotonin-focused stuff about just contentment, relaxation, connection with others, time in nature, all of that sort of stuff. So and, yeah, and that can be, be too far too. the other way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I look, absolutely. There are yeah. there are genes that will influence what way your brain is wired, and then there's upbringing as well that goes into it. Um, and and so it, it's really about trying to discover that balance, and that that balance is different for different people, yeah, yeah. right? 
that that's the thing that we we all need to find our own but it's just it's it, it is getting the understanding that proper active recovery is not about sitting drinking wine watching netflix right that's relaxation there's a place for it there's a place I, for that too and yeah. I, i'm not saying you don't do it but I'm saying we need to think about recovery. We need to think particularly around sleep hygiene. You you mentioned yeah, that earlier on. Huge on that. How, how crucial that is. Yep. We need to think about exercise. I mean, you mentioned heat shock proteins, which I'm in love with heat and cold shock yeah. proteins. Yeah, um, me too. Uh, because they, they, not only do they, they drive stress adaptation, um, but there, there is some evidence, and I actually thought there's going to be a shitload more, right? Because in the military, the British military, British Navy's been training soldiers for over a thousand years, right? And they wow. have just noticed that the fittest individuals seem to be able to handle greater amounts of emotional and psychological stress, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So yep. there's no, there's, it, it's no surprise that special forces guys are the fittest, right? And and their training is more brutal physically. Um, but there, there is, uh, there's only been a few studies, actually. I thought there'd be a ton, and I'm actually focusing on, on this in my PhD, is that what's called the cross-stressor hypothesis, that when you become, expose yourself to more high-intensity exercise, um, high-intensity interval training, that sort of stuff, and also cold exposure and heat exposure, um, not only do you become resistant, stress resistant in those areas, but there is a spillover into other areas of your life, right? This this adaptive response mm-hmm. that crosses over stressors. And I'm a massive fan of that. Yeah. And again, it's something that the positive psychology guys don't get is that cross stressor um, uh, drive oh, of actually, yeah, yeah, yeah mm. of doing that. But then, as I said, again, we need to balance that out with recovery. We need to make sure that our nutrition is actually supporting us, right? And, yes. and a lot of athletes, you know, they, they, they are- I'll have to get you back two, on for a whole episode on nutrition. Yeah, there is a, as an absolute um, a chasm when you get into nutrition. Yeah. But but because a lot of your guys are athletes, a, a lot of those guys are are too carbohydrate focused and and that that shit's bad for your health in the long run. You know, you look at um what, what's he called? Professor Tim Noakes, who wrote mm-hmm. about oh, yeah, the yeah. lore of running, right? Running, the guru yeah. of it. The guru of running, yeah. And, and and he said, I got it wrong. He said you cannot outrun a bad diet, right? Yep. Too much of that carbohydrate. That's why I started really, running. So I could eat yeah. more, but apparently it doesn't Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. But it's you know, you get age glycation end products from yep. carbohydrate metabolism and you know, so particularly for athletes who are ultra guys, you know, looking at becoming fat adapted. Uh, yeah. And there's Professor Grant Schofield, I'm sure you know over there, who's a mate of mine who's done a oh, lot really? of research in this area. Yeah. If you have you had Grant on your podcast? No, no, oh, please. You need, Introduction. you need to get you need to get Grant <laughs> Schofield on your podcast. Okay. He's, that'd be awesome. he's an he's an ex triathlon uh, yep. Iron Man uh, guy and he's a professor at Auckland University of Technology he runs the center. <laughs> yeah, I know who he is, but I haven't haven't had him on. So uh, I'll, give I'll me an do intro. An intro. Hook me He's brilliant. He <laughs> is the dude is brilliant. But but yeah, what I'm getting at is that the the approach to peak performance needs to be a more holistic one. Yeah. Where you're really you're looking at your sleep, your sleep hygiene, you're looking at 
at, at exposing yourself to um, uh, manageable amounts of stress and then recovery. You, you're doing those new stress activities. You're also fueling yourself, right? And then you're doing a lot uh, around your mind, your mindset uh, around um, optimizing your thought processes, building those, reframing negative events. But then there's other stuff around connecting to others, understanding your values, your virtues, and connecting your behaviors to those. And, and, and then there's a whole heap of science around creating habits because there's lots of people listening going, yeah, 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 that's good. I want to do all that. And then yeah. they don't do shit, right? Uh, <laughs> Everyone so, wants to be epic and no one wants to do the hard work. <laughs> that's exactly right. But there, there, I mean, there's a lot of neuroscience behind that, right? You, you know, to yeah. be epic, that's a long-term response. And and the brain, uh, there's just one more concept I want to introduce to, to your listeners is around temporal discounting, right? So mm-hmm. the brain will discount um, rewards and benefits that are far off in the future because okay. we may not live. We right? want the, we so want when the immediate. Someone, uh, yeah. When someone's sitting here going, yeah, I'm really motivated. I want to do all this. I want to become really fit and whatever. Uh, and the brain's going, yes, 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 I want that. But it's actually quite far away. It might be months or years away. And then they're presented later on with the glass of wine, the Krispy Kreme donut. And that's immediate. <laughs> It's immediate. And we are driven oh, nice. around immediacy. Yep. And because that, 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 that reward is right there, the brain will actually give extra value to it and it'll discount the stuff in the future. Wow. Right. So that is a reason why it's so hard. Then we know that if somebody, um, becomes obese because they're overeating or somebody is, uh, uh, a, a drug addict or an alcoholic or has taken drugs or alcohol, a lot of them. And um, we know that that temporal discounting is actually accentuated in their brain, right? Wow. So they, they are less able to control, control at the moment and they, they discount stuff that's further in the future. So it's even harder for those guys to make decisions, wow. right? And then there's a whole heap of habituation that goes on in the brain that we really don't have time to get into right now. But it's understanding this is complex, right? It's this not just complex. about the science. It's about how your brain actually works around that. So I like to work with people around, you, you know, let's identify your virtues and your values and let's match the behaviors to those things, right? Because when you do that, um, you're much more likely to do it. And then so that's looking at your why sort of thing. Eh? That's like, lo- it's looking it's at, looking at your- what's motivating you deeply. It's, Yes, deeply the emotional connection. So not only do I do a lot of stuff on your why, you know, Anthony Robbins said, find your why, you find your way. Um, But he stole it from Frederick Nietzsche, the German philosopher, who (laughs) said, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how, right? So I do a lot of stuff on finding your why, and it's got to be an emotional connection. But then it's about identifying what are your your core virtues and your core values uh, and and then um, matching that behavior right to those values so so for instance if if somebody's real values family uh, and and you know they they want to lose weight i would be going right let's connect that with family right you know how useful are you going to be as a dad or as a mom to your kid if you're dead or if you've got a heart attack or if you have diabetes and then you become a burden on your family yeah. right so let's connect what you're doing on a daily basis to family and let's get a way to remind you wow. when you're faced with that choice that this is about family, right? So so there are a lot of things that, that people can do. Hopefully there's a few little snippets there uh, yeah. of, of how they can actually 
use neuroscience and, and, and psychology to, to, to help them to change those behaviors or help yeah. them to, to get towards their goals. And understanding like, you know, the more I learn about the things, you know, it takes away some of the guilt and shame that's associated because when we fail, you know, yeah. I'm going to do the diet and I'm going to be good. And then five minutes later, you bloody fall over and do something you shouldn't have done. And, you know, that's part of the human condition and understanding that it's very complex. And you, if this is why I love having these conversations because I, you know, I learn obviously a ton from people like you, but it also just helps us have these conversations around removing the guilt and the shame associated mm. with failing. Because if you understand that it's neurotransmitters at play and then there's the way that you were conditioned and then there's a genetic component you know the choices that you've made up to now you may made some bad choices because of all this combination of things it's not always a hundred percent your fault but that mm. doesn't mean that it's not a hundred percent your responsibility to do something about it that's from it. here on then that, you that's know? exactly right yeah and and, and you know also people some people are People need to understand there's, there's the, that people are motivated differently with goals, right? So you're very goal-focused, I can yeah. tell, and and big, hurry, audacious goals yep. drive you, right? And some of your listeners will be the same, particularly those who are, who are more athletic. We know that they are driven by that. But for some people, um, big goals are not good, right? Particularly when you have people who need a lot of weight loss. If I had, had clients yeah. in the past who needed that, I'd say, right, what's your goal? If they said it's 20 20 kilos, 30 kilos, and it's months away, I'd be like, right, write that shit down somewhere, forget about it, right? Yep. Yep. Um, what are you going to do in the next three months? Then what are you going to do in the next month? And then yep. what are you going to do in the next Love week? Waypoints, right? Because for some people, that big goal, say, say somebody, um, Mrs. Nurkenferkin or Mr. Nurkenferkin <laughs> wants to lose those 30 kilos, he's got it written on his mirror, all of that, he's got his why there. <laughs> That 30 kilos every day is a reminder that he's a failure. Yeah. Because it's really it's far big. away. Yeah. It's too far away. Yeah. And his brain can't connect what he's doing on a daily basis. So some people, and I like to get people to experiment with it, but um, I like to break those goals down. Longest I like people to focus on if they're not a gun, like nutter like you, is three months. <laughs> yeah. Then what's your one month? Then what's your weekly waypoint? Yeah, and I mean, I, I I need that too. Even when you into big, hairy, audacious yeah, goals, you, gotta break you it do down, yeah. have to break it down. Like when I ran through New Zealand, I've told this analogy before, but you know, two thousand two hundred and fifty kilometers, and I'm standing at the start line, bawling my eyes out, going, "I can't do two thousand two hundred fifty <laughs> kilometers." What was I thinking? And my mum just said to me, "Get to that that first bloody power pole." That's your yeah. job right now. Yeah, the first yeah, half absolutely. an hour. Stop looking yeah. at the, the, the hugeness right. of that and just break it down into the what's what do I have to do right, right this minute? Now. Yeah, right now, absolutely. the next half an hour. And and and, uh, and I use that too sometimes when you're making a little decisions and you're trying to make that decision. Because people think often, and we, I know we need to wrap it up, but um people think often that oh, you're an athlete, you just love running and you're just totally into training and you're just fully motivated all the time. I can tell you, 90% of the time when I go training, I don't feel like training. Mm, and yeah. you, But you learn to, to do it anyway. Yeah. And you just take us, what I, I trick my brain into going, oh, I'll just put my gear on, mm. I'll do a bit of stretching and, you know, a bit of jumping around and see how I feel. 
And when I've done that little bit, it's yeah. like, well, you're here now. You might as well carry on, you know, and you've That's, just tricked yourself. I love it. Love it. I call that. So I call that an enabling behavior, right? Uh-huh. So I'm a big fan of when you come home from work, put your exercise gear on, right? Because yeah. lots of people come home from work. And when I do workshops, I say, who comes home from work and puts the pajamas on? The amount of people that go, yes, that's me. I'm like, what is that shit priming your brain to do? To sit on your arse on the couch with a glass of wine or a beer, right? Yeah. <clears throat> when you come home, put your exercise gear on, right? Because it just primes you to be more active. You don't have to do anything else. Just put your exercise gear, but you, then you're a shitload more likely <laughs> to be more active, to do a workout no, or just to move around more, right? Yeah. And it's like, you know, you don't want to go for a run? Fine. All you got to do is you got to put your exercise gear on. You got to get to the, uh, you got to get to your letterbox yes. and then you make your decision. Yeah. And, if and the, I if do that no, all come the back time. In, right? and, I, and sometimes I do come back in. Like, I, you know, yeah, like you get cool. up in the morning and you should, oh, I'll go for a kilometer. And if I'm not feeling it, because I'm really not, and if I'm really not feeling it, then there's a reason that I'm not meant to be there. And then I'll go home and yeah. I've learned to listen to my body and, and, and do that. And I mean, I just, I mean, I just go around on my running gear all day, every day, because it's yeah. like, uh, because if I get, you know, and if you have a crazy busy life like me, it's like, oh, oh I've got 20 minutes, right? And it, it, that's the other thing I wanted to say. You don't have to have a full hour for it nah. to be a training session. Go Absolutely. If you get 10 minutes here and 20 minutes there and 10 minutes there, that adds up, you know? Yeah. So, so doing those micro commitments sometimes is another way to trick yourself. Yeah, I'm a big fan of movement snacks. So, so yes. right over in the corner in, in my office is, is uh, Club Bells. So I can just see the club bell, go up, pick them up, do some stuff, and then yeah. boom. 30 seconds a minute, right? The people think you have to go to the gym to be yeah. active. Horse shit. Hour and a half. Yeah, too. If I spend an hour and a half at the gym, I would be absolutely knackered because I don't. I only need twenty to thirty minutes generally yeah, at the yeah. gym. That's because I'm in there. I, you know, plus my warm up. You do your warm up properly, people. Yeah, but you, you, I can be exhausted in ten minutes if I want to. Oh, absolutely. I say if you're in the gym more than twenty or thirty minutes, you're not working hard enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, yeah, unless you're doing. A big strength training yeah. component, big heavy. Yeah. You need that's that, you different because they need to rest in between. There's always nuance, right? There's nuance to that. Hey, look, Paul, I, I, I'm very respectful of your time. I'm very, very grateful for your knowledge. It's just insane what you. I, I, I could really love to have you back on the show at some stage if I if I may be so bold to ask again and to talk nutrition perhaps sure. next time. Um, so this one's been all about resilience and how to get a control of your biology, and it's been absolutely wonderful. Where can people connect with you, get you as a speaker, as a, you know, you do a a whole lot of stuff. Uh, How do people follow your work, your podcast, all of that sort of good stuff? Yeah. So, so mind, body, brain is mind, body, brain. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't understand me when I say brain, but (laughs) so mindbodybrain.com.au. My podcast is the mind, body, brain project. Uh, And actually I'm just releasing um, a, my first ever public course. Um, oh. which is with my, with my wife, who's the Japanese psychology wow. uh, person and act. So we're doing a Better You program. You can find out more details on that. It's a, it's all online and webinars and stuff. Uh, deep oh, dives into all of that stuff. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. But uh, that's really where you find out. But I, w- I just want to say the reason why I have to go is that I'm actually going to see a PT um, for the first time, probably you. ever, and I'll tell you why. Because I've got, I need a, a hip replacement, and I'm shit at doing my rehab, yep. and I realised I need accountability. 
So yeah. I actually found someone who lives quite close to me who actually did my course because I used to certify personal trainers. And there's a bit of ego going, you don't need to see a personal trainer. You know all this shit. But I actually need we to go need there coaches. for accountability. Yes. Yeah, for, for accountability because then I do that shit. And I know I'm going to go in and see Nat and she's going to go, have you done your rehab? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. she's holding Love me it. accountable. So um, you're using really that cool. little trick. To make that's yourself it. do something that you don't really want to do, but you know you have exactly. to do. Exactly. And that's the little tricks. And you and you uh, what I like about that too is that you you don't have too big an ego to go and actually learn from someone that you've taught and yeah. already, you know, and, and everybody needs coaches. I have so many coaches, I feel like I'm being bossed around all the time, you know, like because yeah. I, I want to learn from the best. I want to be pushed and challenged and stuff, and I love having mentors and you know, people that that keep me in line where I need mm. to be in line. And each of us needs that, you know? Absolutely. And the ego gets in the way. And you know what? I've learned stuff from someone that I that did my course, which is really cool. <laughs> yes. I just said, don't let your bloody street. ego get in the way. No. Yeah. Paul Taylor, you've been an absolute legend today. Thank you so much. I can't wait to have you back on again. And I can't wait to get you on my podcast and explore things a little bit. So looking forward to it. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends. And head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com.